Well, it's a, it's a wonderful privilege again just to be able to come and share with you all this morning. And uh, I have a wonderful childhood memory. And on my, every Monday night, um, my mom would uh, prepare uh, a beef stew. It was the standard thing. On Monday nights, we got this delicious beef stew with carrots and all kinds of lovely tomato puree and everything. And my mom would go off to her prayer group, and we would all sit around the telly watching the A-team. And our Hannibal and his team would come, and they would have all these amazing plans and save the day. And then I always remember Mr. T saying, Quit your jibber-jabber, fool. Don't you just love the way he puts it? And uh, I felt like the Lord said to me a number of times this week, Quit your jibber-jabber. And uh, I sometimes think that when we lose sight of God's goodness, of the fact that he's in control, that he's faithful, when we begin to lose touch with him, which was interesting, and brought that thing where you feel like he's just a little bit far away, we begin to jibber-jabber. <laughs> we just begin to get a little restlessness in our soul, and our hearts begin to get filled with anxiety and confusion. We lose perspective, and fear becomes our uneasy friend. We begin to fight for our rights and say, who's going to fight for me if I don't stand up for my rights? We turn this way and that way, and we begin to try and make a plan or find a solution. And there's very little in us that feels peaceful or content. We get pushy and impatient with others, insistent that we've got to get our own way because we're beginning to jibber-jabber inside. Maybe we become frantic or we just become silent and stoical, or withdrawn and introspective. But I I believe that God wants to say to us today, stop your jibber-jabber fool. And I know that when he calls us a fool, he says it in the most loving, firm way. I I felt this week I went for a walk in in the park. We have this amazing park. And I had so much jibber-jabbering going on in me, so much wrestling and so many things that I was just like disquieted about. And I couldn't even begin to talk to God about them. They were so wrestling within me. And as I walked along this beautiful avenue with these tall oak trees that lined the avenue, I just thought, okay, God, let me just tell you the things that are on my heart. And I said, number one, and I told him, number two, I think there were about six things I really had to lay down before him. And I told him each of these things. And you know, the amazing thing is I didn't really pray about them. I didn't really ask him what he thought about them. I just told him, this is what is on my heart. And I love the book of Lamentations because that's a bit what Jeremiah does. He just begins to let it all out before God. He laments. He pours out all his impatience, all his frustration, all his disappointment, all the things that are jibber-jabbering inside of him. And he comes before God. And I think that he was a man who was overwhelmed by pain when he wrote that that book. He He saw the desperation of people around him. And he saw the desperation of his own heart. And that's why he says, and it's almost like in he begins to be alienated from God because of the crowding in of these things. Because when I went for that walk this week, I felt God was very far from me. I almost identified with this thing of, of what Jeremiah writes. He says, For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For the comforter is far from me, the one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. 
Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like the comforter is far from you? Like, God, where are you right now? I just feel so overwhelmed with all that's facing me. But there's an amazing thing. As he pours out his anguish, as he pours these things out to God, if you read um, in Lamentations 3, verse 22 to 26, it's almost like his lament turns into revelation. He begins to see things. And there's this amazing thing he says, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Do you ever get feel like that? No, sometimes, yeah? That you just have a week where you think, what is this all about? Why am I feeling so low? My endurance has perished. In other words, in the common language, I can't go on. I can't keep up. I can't do this anymore. Have any of you said that? Yes, I'm good at seeing some nods. And, uh, and he says, so, my hope fr- so has my hope from the Lord. He says he's even stopped putting his hope in God. That's not very spiritual. Sometimes we feel so removed from these things, by these things that invade our lives, that we can even stop putting our hope in God himself. And he says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So as he focuses on all these things, all his anguish, all these things that are pounding at his life, what starts to happen is he becomes bowed down. He becomes despairing. He begins to give in to those things that are an assault on him. But then this is what he says, but. Isn't it wonderful? As he's pouring out his heart before God, God starts to filter in. It's like the light just starts to come in. It's a good place to start with where you are at. You can't expect God to come and suddenly inject you with this amazing revelation if you're not starting at the honesty place of just saying, this is where I'm at. We come to God and say, I can't even hope in you anymore, God. I don't see a way through. I can't go on. It's in that place we get the buts. And yeah, he says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. He starts to focus on something else. The steadfast love of the Lord never, ever ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait patiently and quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Quit your jibber-jabber. Wait for God. Wait patiently for him. I love it that it says to those who seek him, Sometimes we've just got to push through that veil. He wants us to push past those things because he's waiting there for us. Sometimes he allows those things to come so that we seek him out. Otherwise, we'd just go merrily on our way. He wants us to come to him, to seek him out. I've asked Wayne just to put up this song, and um, I, I, do you know the song, The Steadfast Love of the Lord Never Ceases? Maybe if there's one thing that I leave with you 
this morning is that you can, you know, sometimes you have an irritating ditty that sticks on your tongue. Well, I hope this is not an irritating ditty. I hope this is a song that will go out with you this week, that when you wake up in the morning, you will sing this song. Is it up, Wayne? Thanks, Wayne. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Do you, do you all know this old song? Okay. Yes or no, I'll try. Okay. Yes, you can. Thank you. <laughs> Just so we don't start in a funny key. And just let's just sing the song as a declaration, as Jeremiah declared over his life, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies think that that's such a, when we can begin to sing scripture, it's a thing that refocuses us, doesn't it? Because you just start singing out the truth. You start singing out what God has spoken, and your hope begins to be renewed, and you begin to see things differently. I, I, um, I love, uh, have you seen, I don't know who the guy is who acts in Little Britain. I don't like all of the stuff he does, but he acts as Toad in Toad of Toad Hall. Have you ever seen, um, what, what, it's Toad Hall, huh? and Wind in the Willows, yes. He acts as Toad. And you know, Toad keeps on going off and, with these obsessive hobbies, and he, go, and he becomes obsessed about airplanes and cars and fishing and boating. And his friends are trying to persuade him that he must never, ever stop, the, he must stop this obsession. And he says to them, I will never, ever, 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 ever. Ever, 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 drive a car again, ever. <laughs> and I, I feel like God says that when he says about his mercies, they will be there forever and ever and ever. If ever and ever and ever could go on, he will, he will be faithful to us. There's, there's not a never in God's book. He is constant, he's faithful, he will always be there. His mercies are new every morning. And then Jeremiah in in verse in chapter three, he says this I called 
on your name, O Lord. From the depths of the pit, you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You heard me. There's no cry, however faint, however removed, that God does not hear. And his consolation to us is, do not fear. Do not be afraid. What is man that you are afraid of him? Because God is greater than anything that we can face. Do not fear. Do you know when Paul wrote the words to the Philippian church in Philippians 4, he said, he said these things. I know you know this very well. He said, rejoice always. And I'll say to you again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. He's at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. Quit your jibber-jabber. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, present your request to God. And then he says, And the peace of God, which passes human understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. I find it amazing that in the midst of frustration, in the midst of pain, in the midst of challenges, the quality that he calls us to embody is gentleness. Why gentleness? Why not courage or initiative or front-footedness or strategic thinking or analysis? Surely that's a much more sensible approach to the things that assail us. But he says, let gentleness be the quality that you carry. Isn't that amazing? We did this wonderful study um, through a wonderful Bible teacher called Beth Moore on the fruit of the Spirit, and she gave all the different qualities of the fruit of the Spirit a corresponding action. So she said, love never fails, and uh, joy comes, because there's that wonderful scripture that says, joy comes in the morning. Isn't that wonderful? You don't, you don't have joy yet? The truth about joy is it comes. It will come. And uh, patience waits. Peace rules. Kindness tenders. Goodness does. Faith fights. You, you, you're needing to push through in something? Faith is what helps us persevere. But then this wonderful thing about the gift of the fruit of, of gentleness. Gentleness bows. Paul is saying, in the midst of your frustrations, your anxieties, and your pains, let gentleness be evident to all, because gentleness bows. Bowing is an act of surrender. We know that when we really know that God has heard our cries, when we've poured out our hearts in lament to him, and we know that his steadfast love will never cease. His faithfulness will never end to us. We can bow. We can surrender to him. We can yield to his processes, however painful they may be. Because we know that God is in control and he is good. And he's faithful to form Christ in us and he's faithful to form Christ in those around us that he is working in. I believe the opposite of jibber-jabber is humility. Won't you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 5, verse 5 to 10. 
I think Peter understood this. Clothe yourselves, verse 5, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Who are you to humble yourself? The mighty hand of God who loves you, whose steadfast mercy is ever towards you, whose faithfulness is extended towards you. Under his hand, you humble yourself. So that at the proper time, there's a process in God, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is not someone who doesn't care for you, who's not looking out for your interests. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Isn't that comforting? We are the body of Christ. We are all going through, it might not be the exactly same thing, but we all go through, through trials and sufferings and difficulties. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. That's his promise. There's a time of suffering, but it's, and and little while I've learned in God is not, is a relative word. (laughs) I thought a little while might be a month or two, but a little while for God could be three or four years or ten years. But don't worry, (laughs) because he himself will establish you, strengthen you, perfect you, and bring you into the fullness of what he has for you. And why I say that humility is the opposite of jibber-jabbering is because humility, I believe, is when you can say, God, I need you. God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I was very discouraged, or not discouraged, that's the wrong word, disconcerted. I was uh, looking up some quotation that I was following up some teaching on on the... the internet, and uh, I've heard this teaching go around, and it's from an American teacher called Rob Bell, and I know there's some things that he says that are great, but this thing just uh, it didn't sit well with me, and it was just, he said that actually when God calls us to be his disciples, there's actually something in us that he sees, that he says, I believe in you. Just as much as we are called to believe in God, he says, I believe in you. There's something in you that I want to call out to make you my own. And I just believe that is so opposite to the gospel. Actually, there's nothing in us that is redeemable. There's nothing in us that God says, wow, that impresses me. The only thing that impresses God is the fact that we are in the blood of Christ. The only thing that enables us to be have anything redeemable about us is his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And uh, I just think that that, for me, is the opposite of humility, that there's something about me that God needs. There's something about me that God finds irresistible. The thing that God finds irresistible about me is that I'm in his son Christ. He, he loves me completely. And I'm not, you know, it's a very fine line because then people could say, Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, 
you know, well, God, God does love me in the first place. Yes, he does. But that's a quality of his. It's not that I'm worthy of love. It's an amazing thing. And that is why when sometimes I think that God allows us to go to a place of brokenness where we really realize our emptiness. Sometimes we can be so full of ourselves, in the real literal sense of that word, that we actually don't have a real perspective of ourselves, that we don't realize how merciful God is, that he reached down when we were undeserving and he took us to be his own, that he gave us dignity, that he gave us strength, that he gave us a hope and a future. That is something that he did. And the, and the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when we come with a brokenness and we say, God, I need you. I'm stopping all this jibber-jabber in my life. I need you. God comes and he just lavishes grace. He says, here, I will give you everything you need for your life. Because I think, you know why God resists pride? is because pride resists God. Pride says, I don't need you and I don't need your grace. I am all sufficient without you. So how can God give grace when we say we don't need his grace? But you know what's interesting also with this passage on, on humility, this dependency on God? It's also about, it says, be humble, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And uh, there's, a, there's a very interesting quote um, that uh, Richard Foster gives about solitude, and it says, the in- solitude is the inward unity that frees us from the panicked need for acclaim and approval. Through it, we are enabled to be genuinely alone, for the fear of obscurity is gone, and we are enabled to genuinely be with others for they no longer control us. It's a very powerful statement. We can have a place in ourselves which is so settled and content before God that we are not in constant strife with the relationships around us. And uh, this is a thing that settled me. Like God came to me when I was walking in that park. He just like said, quit your jibber-jabber, fool. And uh, he didn't ride over me like a tank. But he certainly captured my attention. And he just said to me, he said to me, live for the audience of one. Live for the audience of one. Who do you pour your life out for? Who do you, who do you seek approval most from? Sometimes we kind of have a whole lot of voices of people in our head. And I don't mean that in a schizophrenic way. I mean it's in a way that's like we have these these things that we feel that we've got to find approval of or expectations we've got to live up to, those voices in our head. But the Lord says, live before me. Let me be your audience. Everything you do in the secret place, in the public place, wherever you are, let it be before me, the audience of one. Because I believe that when that happens, we won't even begin to jibber-jabber in our relationships. We will begin to have a contentment and a joy. We won't need to find to be pushy or strident or manipulative to get our way. That gentleness of bowing to one another and yielding control to one another also comes. 
And uh, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about what is the difference when you are humble with those around you. In other words, you say, like you say to God, I need you. I, I need people in my life. Sometimes we can be so sufficient and say, actually, I've got it all together. I'm the, I'm the complete package, you know. I, I don't need people around me. But sometimes God breaks in on our lives and makes us see, actually, I need friends. I need help. I need input. I need, I need to share my story. I need to share my life. And that's a good thing, and it's a healthy thing. But I just, as I was thinking about this, I, I was also thinking about a thing where what if you have been abused by people? What if you have been emotionally controlled? How do you be humble in that place? How do you bow? How do you be gentle and, and not be defending your rights or defending yourself when you have been in an abusive situation? And uh, I think that's a very important question to ask because when I think God asks us to be humble and yielding, he's not asking us to, to give in to those things which control us emotionally. But he is asking us to surrender to him who is the one who watches over things. And sometimes with, with the emotional control, there can be a whole lot of different things that you don't even know uh, what, what the thing can be. And I was just helping someone the other day, and I just uh, was talking, you know, sometimes in relationships, there can be very subtle things that can become control factors when we're not humble with one another. Like sometimes there can be unpredictable responses or mood swings. And that can always leave a person on edge thinking, oh, oh, where do I stand in this relationship? Or maybe it's unex- or just, uh, what is the word I want? Demands on your, your affections or your time or something from you that is beyond what you're able to give. Or maybe it's threats to abandon the relationship if you don't comply to different things. Um, maybe it's... Um, extremes of love and generosity to, with tempered with anger and disapproval. I saw a poster um, dealing with abuse and it said, um, is he your prince, um, are you his princess the one minute and his dirty tart the next? And those kind of extremes of feeling loved and then rejected. How do you be gentle in those dynamics. And um, that doesn't mean just in the domestic context, it could be at work, you might feel, how do I be gentle with this person at work who trashes me and walks all over me? I think that's a very interesting question, isn't it? Because I think that um, God is the one that we bow to and we trust him in his purposes. We trust him that he is in control that he is able to even use this situation and this relationship to turn it around. And I think that sometimes we can start to, to just put in the, the little fence poles around us and we start to cut ourselves off from God as a defense mechanism. But God is saying, don't do that. Don't build walls. I see your pain. I see the thing. And you know what? It's just the same as when we talk to God and we say, God, I'm calling this what it is. I'm a, this, these things are worrying me. 
when you are being manipulated or controlled, call it what it is, and you've already broken its power. Just say, actually, when I think something's valid and someone minimizes what I feel, then that's a control point. You know what I'm saying? All those things, we can just call them what they are, but then we don't get into becoming a vigilante seeking justice. That's not our business. We don't seek justice and we don't say, okay, God, I'm going to find a vindication in this relationship. There's a sense that gentleness says, God, I'm going to trust you. And I don't, I don't especially know why I'm talking on this. And maybe, maybe you're thinking, why am I? I just, as I was preparing, I just felt to bring this in. But God wants us to be able to be gentle, even in the midst of things that are difficult for us. Because he is in control, because he is watching out for us. He will defend us. I want to just end off with this wonderful passage from Philippians 1. And it says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being full in accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a very, very powerful thing to say. Humility says, I count others more significant than myself. That means the needs and the concerns of others are more important. Uh, When we're getting ready this morning, I had a few more things I had planned to do, but I knew Ant had to be here at a certain time. So I kind of started going through this motion of going, but I have my rights. I have things I still need to do, and I don't want to be under pressure to go, we have to get to church. And uh, as I did that, I just remembered what I was preaching on this morning. <laughs> and I just felt the Lord say, actually, there's a more important need, <laughs> and Ant is leading worship. And uh, I just think that sometimes these things can be very, very subtle, how we are to consider others more significant than ourselves. But actually... Maybe consider someone else's situation. Consider their pain. I love that saying that love is patience with imperfect people. No? How patient is God with me? And love is patience with imperfect people. If we expect everyone around us to be perfect, then we're in la-la land. No one is perfect, and least of all, me. So God asks us to look out for others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death. God who was so, Jesus, so powerful, so almighty, gave up all of that, that he could come and be a servant. He humbled himself. And uh, I think that he didn't do that because he had nothing better to do. 
I really believe that God had such a sense of of love and compassion for us that he gave himself away and he emptied himself so that he could come and identify with us. And humility says, I can empty myself of what's all about me so that I can become a servant for those that God has put around me. I, I was just began to weep in the worship because I have these friends, I have a, a Muslim friend who has a disabled child I have a, I mean, a Hindu friend, and I have a Muslim friend who's been through, uh, going through a divorce. She's got two little girls. Their needs are more significant than mine. Do I only love people who are Christians? Those are two of the most beautiful women I know. You know, God, God is, God is wanting us to empty ourselves of those things which are consumed with us in our world. And our need. And, uh, and he wants us to come to the place of saying, when I look to God and I begin to trust in him, that he's going to take care of my needs. He's going to take care of every situation, every jibber-jabber in my heart. Then I can start to live for others and live humbly before my brothers and sisters. I can be gracious when people are going through their own struggles. I can be patient because I'm not perfect and I've received grace in my place of need. So the Lord says, let's quit our jibber-jabbering. Let's come before him this morning. Let's access him. Maybe you need to go for a walk in the park this afternoon. I don't know what you need to do. And said that thing, God is knocking on the door of our hearts. Let's not shut him out. Let's find grace. Let's find mercy in our place of need. Let's humble ourselves and say, I need you, God. I need you.